Hi, I'm Dr. Ashley Maitek, a member of the faculty at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine. Over the next several weeks, we're presenting a mini-series called The Veterinary Detective. In each episode, we discuss a case with a veterinary clinician who walks us through the diagnostic process to help us understand how they apply clinical reasoning in their practice. Today, we take a look inside the world of food animal veterinarians. When a farmer calls for help with sick calves, but can only report vague symptoms, lacking even the most basic history, where do you go from there? We'll answer that question in this episode we call the case of the calves that weren't quite right. Joining me is Dr. Jim Lowe, a livestock veterinarian at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine and director of the iLearning Center. Dr. Lowe, thanks for joining us. Let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your patient and their illness. So Dr. Mitek, so this is a, uh, an interesting deal, right? So I'm a food animal guy and, and it's pretty traditional that we have farmers who buy one group of calves, feeder calves every fall, and they feed those calves through the next summer. Uh, and then they sell in the market and they start feeding them again. And so my client, Henry, and you know, Henry's uh, not a spring chicken anymore. And so Henry, and like his dad did before him and his grandpa for, before him, bought a group of calves and 165 of them, which is two truckloads. And they brought those calves in and plunked them in the yard, which is just the lot next to the barn. And they started feeding those calves. So a couple of weeks ago, they bought those calves and they weigh 650 pounds like they always weigh. And he brings them in and uh, he called me and he said, doc, doc, they're not right. We need to take, we need to take a look at them. So your presenting complaint is doc, they're not right. And we often talk to the students about starting with a signalment, age, breed, sex, species. So these are feeder calves, which are the black and white kind or the all black kind, or what exactly is a feeder calf and how old are they? Yeah, so those are all good questions, right? So we're now unpacking some farmer ease, which is, which is important. And so when we think about feeder calves, let's step back a little bit and talk about the beef industry for two seconds. And when we think about beef cattle, and so these are not black and whites, not dairy cattle. So we have two basic groups of cattle we have in the country, dairy cattle, which have been bred and selected for milk. And the vast majority of those are black and white or Holsteins. Uh, and then the others would be Jerseys, which are little short things. So the Holsteins are German and the, and the Jerseys are British off the Isle of Jersey. And then we have huge numbers in this country, uh, you know, five or six times as many beef cows. And so those cows are bred and selected to be hamburger and steaks. So beef cows in this country are grass converters. We raise cows to convert grass because of ruminants into protein. And that's, that's how they work. And so because mama cows that have babies need grass to graze on, they, we tend to have those in parts of the country where we have a lot of grass. So the south, the west, we don't have many here in the Midwest. But once those calves are weaned, they need more energy to eat. So once they're off mom, we try to feed them uh, a higher energy diet. And that means typically corn in the United States. And so we have corn in the Midwest. So we have kind of two segments to the industry. We have where grass is, mama cows, and we have a few brood cows in Illinois, but I mean, that's not a big industry in Illinois. 
But in the Midwest, we have a lot of feeder cattle. So we bring those calves after weaning. So feeder calves are calves that have been weaned and they are going to be fed and raised for, you know, somewhere between six and nine months uh, before they go to slaughter, before they go to harvest to become steaks. And so that's the primary source of steaks and chops and roast and those kinds of things. So these calves, uh, and, and Henry has bought calves uh, for years out of Kentucky. So the South has got a lot of cattle. This is the same practice, uh, you know, my dad's family did growing up. They bought calves every fall out of the sand hills in Nebraska. So another area, a lot of grazing, a lot of mama cows. And so these cows would be, you know, historically would have been red or, or black. And now they're almost all black. So they're Aberdeen Angus crosses, again, a British breed. And we do that because they're really tender and have a lot of marbling. So good, high quality steak. And so Henry buys his calves out of Kentucky, out of the bluegrass sale barn, and he's done that for years. And so these calves come up. And so what we know about these calves are they weigh 650 pounds and they came from Kentucky. We don't know much more than that. And that's one of the, you know, the things when we work in the cattle business, we have to deal with a lot of ambiguity a lot of times. And we have to deal with that and we have to understand that. So we don't know how long these calves have been weaned. We don't know if they've had any vaccinations. We don't know what they were eating. All we know is, is that the truck door opened up and whoop, off they came. And they weighed about 650 pounds. And uh, this is what's going on. So we can do a lot of things to say, because when they come through a sale barn, they've all got an individual tag on their back. And so do they come from the same sale barn? Have they been commingled? Do they all look the same? If I've got five different colors of cattle, it probably tells me those aren't all from the same farm. Uh, and if they're all black, they might be from the same farm. And so we looked at these and just a bit of inside knowledge, when cattle come out of Kentucky, they're probably commingled. Why is that? Why do you, why do you know that if they come out of Kentucky, they're commingled? So in the South, the land properties tend to be quite small. So the average cow herd tends to be quite small. And in the West, the properties tend to be quite large, so the cow herd tends to be quite large. So if I'm going to buy 165 calves and they came from small cow herds, they're going to have to mix multiple cow herds to get my group of 165. And that's even more important because we typically, like Henry, only buys steers, so only buys male castrates. The heifers stay at home a lot of times and they'll be the replacement cows. And so we're buying half the cow herd. So the average cow herd in the United States is something like 30 cows. So there's 15 steers every year. So to make up Henry's 165, he's got to have 10 or 12 or 15 farms in there just to get that together. So when we think about this, right, these become key bits as we think about what are we doing with disease and how do we understand that? And that might be different than a group coming from Montana where the average cow herd might be a thousand cows. So you could buy 165 steers out of one ranch and they would have come together. And so the, as a veterinarian, that's a very different disease. That's a very different risk profile. It's a very different, it's a key bit of the signalment to understand how do I need to think about what's likely to happen. So I just want to go back a second. So you get a, you get a phone call from Henry saying, Doc, my, my, it's not cows. That's not calves. the right word. Calves. Calves. Feeder my, calf. Yep. My my feeder calves are not right. Can yep. you come out and look at them? You know roughly what size they are, what weight they are. And now at this point, when you start to problem solve, you're not yet on the farm, but you're you're headed out there. 
what is going through your head? So you, you already know from the relationship you have with Henry that these are from multiple different farms. And are there other things you're thinking of right now before you get to the farm? Are you thinking of what questions you're going to ask him? Where's your mind at right now? So you're going to think through, right? Like, okay, Henry, when did they come in? So how long have they been there? So he said a couple of weeks. So let's say 14 days. And you're going to ask him, well, Henry, did you vaccinate those calves off the truck? So I want to know what Henry did after they got there. So Henry may have bought all the supplies from us, but it's pretty typical farmers do their own work. So we wouldn't necessarily go process those calves at arrival. So when we think about those calves, we try to make sure Henry has a good plan. So he's probably going to give them uh, a modified live respiratory vaccine. So for the viral respiratory agents, and we'll talk about that, right? So um, BBD and so herpes virus and BBD virus and uh, parainfluenza virus and BRSV. What's BVD? Bovine viral diarrhea virus. And so there's a couple of strains of that, of that that we vaccinate for. So that, that'd be really common. We're going to give a four or five way modified live viral vaccine. And we're going to try to protect them against Clostridium. So we're going to give them some, uh, a seven or eight way killed Clostridium toxoid, Bacterin toxoid to protect them against black leg or uh, Black's disease or um, uh, really that's the two overeating disease, but those are the two you're really trying to work against. And then they're probably going to need to put parasite control on those calves. So they're going to deworm those calves some way. And so we're worried about internal parasites or Stronzyl type, uh, parasites in these calves, uh, which we're going to probably treat a couple of ways because of resistance. So we're probably going to use a couple of classes of dewormer to deworm those calves. So we would probably use a bendazole or a quote, quote, white warmer, uh, which is given orally. So fenbendazole or albendazole, part of the bendazole brothers. Um, and then uh, we probably are going to give a what, quote, quote, clear warmer, which is an avermectin or a macrocytic lactone. And so that would be the, the prototype drug in that class is uh, ivermectin. Uh, but we would use uh, moxidectin or other products today, so, so or dormidectin. So we're going to use a, an injectable type warmer. And then we worry about external parasites as well, so lice and cattle in particular. So we're probably going to put a topical uh, product on for that. So we may use, a, a, again, an ivermectin type poron, uh, which is cheap and uh, not absorbed very well, but works really well in lice. And historically, we would have used an organophosphate. And so we use less of that today for uh, obvious reasons. So we've got this parasite control plan and we've got an immunization plan at the time of arrival. And that's what we're going to do. And so I'd ask Henry, hey, Henry, did we do those things? And Henry's going to say, yep, we worked them off the truck, Doc. They showed up Monday night. We worked them Tuesday morning. Great. Like we always do. So, um, right, we just want to know, did we do those things? But we got to think about what the consequences are. We're giving a modified live vaccine, so that can induce some disease. And are they quote, quote, sweating because of that. And we'd expect that over the next three or four days, right? They'll get a, like when we get vaccinated, little kids get vaccinated, right? They have a fever after that. And so you can see that happen. And so what happened, et cetera. So we're two weeks out. So, okay, they got vaccinated, they got dewormed. I don't feel too bad that that, that kind of thing. And then I'm going to ask Henry when I'm on the phone with him, well, what do you mean they're not right, Henry? And so I know, Doc, they're hanging back. What does hanging back mean? Well, we have more farmerisms. We have to work through our farmerisms here. So 
Normally, when they say hanging back, what they're saying is that we'd expect these calves to come up to the feed bunk when they're fed in the morning quite aggressively. They're hungry, right? They've got good diet. And so these calves are not approaching the feed bunk or not being aggressive with their other calf mates. They're hanging off to the side. They're not behaving normally. And so that's really when we think about disease in these prey species, and this is a key bit. When we think about cows and pigs and even horses, they're very different than dogs and cats because dogs and cats are predators. And these other species, you know, the rumen sheep and cattle and pigs and horses, they're the, the prey. They're the things a predator eats. And so prey critters tend to try to hide their illness pretty well. And so they tend to be often quite sick before they show you disease. And there's an old saying that says, sick sheep seldom survive. And that's not because sheep's immune systems are terrible. It's because they're a prey critter and they absolutely refuse to show you illness because they know if they're, if they're sick, that's the one the wolf's going to pick on. So there's this big evolutionary bend that they're going to try to hide sickness from you. And so when they start to be, be sick, they start to not want to eat. They start to do these things. So we talk a lot when we work with cattle, right? And we work with stockmanship. We say, you've got to give the calves the confidence to show you that they're sick. And that's proving to them that you're not a predator. So good stockmen like Henry that have done this forever, and, and we've certainly got great young stockmen as well, do that. Their natural behavior with these cattle is not threatening. They're not loud. They're always moving. And if you think about a cat hunting a mouse, right, it's going to go up and stop when it sees the mouse move. And that's how all predators hunt. So you walk into a pen of calves and you walk in there and you stop. They, and, and don't move, they can't see you very well. Now they, now they get nervous. So it's, it's this learning these stockmanship skills to say, mm, they're willing to show me sickness today, which is really, really important. So you go out to the farm and you have this conversation with Henry. You know that they uh, seem to have had their preventative care taken, uh, provided to them, their vaccines, dewormers, and all that kind of stuff. So what are you going to do now to look at the calves and try to understand more from the veterinary side, what actually is wrong with these guys? Yeah, so I think actually the, the, the key here is that as a veterinarian, you, we're both veterinarians and, and you got to go look, you just can't do it on the phone. And so when you get to the farm, I got to get out of my pickup truck and I can't just talk to Henry. I got I to go get in the pen with those cattle. And I got to go look at those cattle. And now my stockmanship skills become important. So when I get to the farm, I got to the farm, we moved these cattle around the pen, gave them some confidence and identified the ones that both Henry and I thought were sick. So they're depressed. They don't want to eat. You'll hear the term hanging an ear. One ear is lower than the other. Yeah. These are, again, I'm giving you all the good farmerisms today. Is that in a veterinary textbook anywhere, anywhere that... No, that's in a farmer textbook. Okay. And so what they're really saying is, right, if cattle are feeling good and, and getting after it, they'll turn and both of their ears are forward and erect. And so we worry about horse ears a lot, right? If you're going to run horses, horse pins his ears back, you better be paying attention because you're, you're, he's not comfortable with you. Well, it's the same thing with cattle. So when cattle are alert, their head's up and their ears are forward. 
And when they don't feel good, they'll drop those ears off the side of their head. So that calf's ears should be up and forward. And all of a sudden it's just relaxed. Like he just is not willing to put his head up. Like that's him hanging his head down. Like, oh God, I feel crappy. And so they'll hang an ear is what the term you'll hear. So it's really just meaning instead of being bright and alert, they're, eh, they don't feel very good. And so we identified in this group out of 165, 10 of them that we thought didn't feel very good. So we take those calves and we'll pull those calves off. And so obviously um, we just don't walk up to them and say, hey, Bob, what's wrong here? Um, and they're big critters and they're prey critters. So we, we will separate them off and, and put them in the, the alley in the chute. So an individual um, animal at a time will go in and get caught in a head gate and we can restrain them so they don't thrash around. And then we do a physical exam. Now, one of the key things about being a food animal veterinarian is, is understanding that critters don't like to be restrained like that. Remember, they're, they're prey. And so being quick about it becomes an extremely important thing. So when we bring the calf in, we want to be prepared. We want to do our physical exam very quickly. We want to focus on the key things that are going on. And we want to uh, get that calf back out and, and, and back somewhere where he's not restrained uh, fairly quickly. So we need to move fairly quickly. So these aren't like some half hour process here. This is a, this is a get after it, learn what you need to learn and, and move on. So when we think about it, if you know any creature when they don't feel good and when they're uh, you know us included, right? We have to think that their immune system stimulated. Uh, and so they've got some cytokine response and the old immune system's kicking in here. So we're going to try to assess what's going on and we think they're not eating. So we got to first start with which organ system's involved. So we're going to do some relatively simple stuff. First of all, we're going to look and we're going to try to understand how fast are they breathing? Are they breathing more rapidly than normal or not more rapidly than normal? Are they breathing, breathing with more effort or not more effort? So they have dyspnea or not? Are they tachypnic? Are they dyspneic? And then we want to know, do they have a temperature, right? They don't feel good. Is that, is, that, is that lack of feeling good associated with a fever? So we're going to put a thermometer in their rectum and take their temperature. So if they're dyspneic, tachypnic, and have a fever, right? It's not probably particularly difficult to say. It's likely that the respiratory tract is involved. And I now probably have systemic involvement because I've got a fever, right? It's gone beyond just the respiratory tract. Dr. Lowe just mentioned two important terms, tachypnea and dyspnea, which are ways to describe abnormal lung sounds. Tachypnea describes rapid breathing and dyspnea refers to labored breathing. When you examine those calves and you find the sicker ones, you run into the chute, you do your physical exam, that seems like that would be a huge amount of stress, right? And you talked about why it's important to minimize the time you, you put them through that. I guess my question would be, how do you differentiate whether your abnormal findings are due to stress versus actual disease? So if we think about that, right? So I can be tachypnic and I can be febrile just because of stress. So if I have a fever, that does not mean that they have disease. That's a fever of unknown origin. And if they're just tachypnic, 
i.e. breathing rapidly, that can just be stress. So for me to confirm that I've got a respiratory tract involvement, I've got to put a stethoscope on their chest. And I've got to say, are those sounds normal? And I can auscultate them and, and if, remember an auscultation is just listening to the air movement. And so if there's turbulence, I'm going to hear sounds. And so that means I probably have airway disease, which is bronchopneumonia, which is really, really common in these boogers. Now I can have tachypnea and dyspnea and no changes in auscultation. And that can work for a couple of reasons. One, it's not airway disease, it's tissue disease, it's interstitial pneumonia. Or I can have consolidation so the pneumonia is severe enough so now I don't even have air movement in that tissue. So I may need to use, you know, alternative diagnostics. We've all, all got ultrasounds uh, around, uh, you know, uh, even cattle guys carry ultrasounds all the time to prank check. Well, you can use those to examine a lung. So we wouldn't start with an ultrasound. We'd start with a stethoscope. But if that lung doesn't sound, oh, okay, I've got bronchopneumonia, I can isolate that. If that doesn't work, ah, maybe I need to put a stethoscope, maybe I need to put an ultrasound on their chest and say, ah, is there consolidation there or not? Is there an interstitial pattern? Is there fluid in the chest? And so I've got to correlate all those signs to say, yep, I know I've got respiratory disease. So once you've got these calves through the chute and you're finding so far on your problem list that they're febrile, they're dyspneic, they're tachypneic, um, and it, I'm assuming it's pretty consistent across all the 10 that come through. Yep. Then from that information, where are you going in your problem solving brain that are you starting to think about? You mentioned diagnostics that maybe you want to put an ultrasound on one of these calves or several of them. And then are there any other diagnostics you're simultaneously thinking of? I would imagine Right. Once you have them in the chute and you let them go, it's going to be hard to get them back in the chute if you decide an hour later, oh, I wish I had taken a nasal swab or whatever it is. Yeah, so we're, we're going to do everything in, in a couple of three minutes. We're going to do it while they're standing there, and we're going to think about all 10 of those independently. So, right, we're going to say, okay, calf one comes in. He has elevated lung sounds in the cranioventral region. On the right side, so we remember our anatomy, right? The calf's got a funny uh, um, auxiliary uh, uh, lung lobe, which comes off on the ventral part of the trachea in the front. So the right front uh, tends to be where gravity works. That's where bronchopneumonia ends up because the bacteria are coming down the respiratory tract. So he's got elevated lung sounds there and he's got a fever. And so when we think about classifying these, we're going to create a case definition. And so that's how severe is it? How long has it been going on? So is it mild, moderate, severe? Is it acute or chronic? Which organ system's involved? In this case, the respiratory system. So we're going to call it pneumonia. In which bit of the respiratory system? So we now know it's the airway because I can hear that. So I've got bronchopneumonia. And depending on how much lung involvement there is and um, how much muffling there is. So we get more chronic. So if I have more consolidation, I might call that chronic and severe, or it might be mild and acute. And those things tend to go together. It's pretty hard to get severe acute pneumonia. I mean, the calf tends to compensate pretty well for that. And so I'm going to put those things together and then I'm going to devise a treatment plan all in the matter of a few minutes here. So let me go back a step. What was your case definition for these 
feeder calves. So they had bronchopneumonia and was, was it acute or chronic? And then what were the other factors you? Four of them were mild acute bronchopneumonia. Three of them were mild, or excuse me, moderate acute bronchopneumonia. And three of them were moderate chronic bronchopneumonia. So if we think about that, the progression of disease occurs over multiple days, right? So what we're seeing is probably those chronics that came in were probably sick when they arrived, and they're probably the source of disease for the rest of the population. So I now know something about what's going on from an epidemic standpoint, that there's disease spread within the population. And I also know that old Henry probably missed sick cattle four or five or six or seven days ago because he's got some chronics in the population. So, right, I'm now processing this to say, I've got multiple case definitions and I have to think about, okay, how do I help Henry find the next set of sick calves because there's going to be more. Dr. Lowe just mentioned a sculpting abnormal lung sounds in the process of examining these calves. Auscultation is listening to sounds from the heart, lungs, or other organs, typically with a stethoscope. Learning to differentiate normal and abnormal sounds is often key to making the correct diagnosis. Let's start by listening to normal lung sounds of a feeder calf. Could you even hear it? Probably not easily, and that's normal. In general, it can be hard to hear lung sounds in a healthy bovine patient. Now let's listen to abnormal lung sounds of a feeder calf patient that Dr. Lowe was talking about. Now you can probably hear the difference when you compare it to the normal lung sounds. This is from one of the feeder calves that had bronchopneumonia. With the information you have now that you've done your physical exam, where, what's your next step? So we're gonna treat, treat each calf as it comes through. And we're gonna use an antibiotic to treat those calves. They've got bronchopneumonia, right? BRD or bovine respiratory disease is a A common and B routinely worked out deal. We understand, I mean, we still do a fair amount of consulting work in feed yards, right? We collect a lot of data on which antibiotics they respond to based on chronicity and not chronicity, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we would pick an antibiotic that's appropriate. Back to the stress bit, we're really lucky today in food animal. We've got antibiotics that are long lasting, so we can give one injection and it's gonna stay on board for six to eight days. So we don't have to retreat these boogers and restress them, so that becomes important. And then we're gonna think about particularly based on the chronicity bucket, which antibiotic we pick based upon their tissue distribution. So those mild cattle, there's a whole class of antibiotics, the macrolides are really the, these the triamylide antibiotics, which are stay on board for seven days and they distribute into the airway really, really well. So those acute cattle where we don't have consolidation, ah, we wanna think about a macrolide and put that on board. And if the cattle are a little more chronic, I'm gonna go look for an antibiotic that's gonna actually penetrate that tissue better. So the, the fluorophenicol type products are, are actually advantageous there. So we're gonna select our antibiotic, probably not based on resistance patterns because it isn't very useful as a guide for treatment in food animals or in, in cattle respiratory disease. 
I'm really trying to make sure, can I get the drug to the bug? So that's principle number one. So pharmacokinetics is important and distribution is important. And then the other bit is, is what can I do to get the calf's immune system going again? So antibiotics don't cure pneumonia. Antibiotics give the immune system a fighting chance to cure pneumonia. So you try to knock it back and let the immune system get over the hump. And so we're now gonna say, what do I need to do to get that calf going? So treating the calves in the chute is part of our plan. And that's certainly a part of the deal. And we're getting with those calves antibiotics, but the real treatment occurs when we let those calves out. So we're gonna try to separate those calves from the herd. And we're gonna say, listen, I need to give that calf food, water, and a dry place to sleep because it's that food, water, and a dry place to sleep that's gonna let that calf's immune system get after it. So we're gonna separate them. We're probably gonna bed them a little deeper. We're gonna feed them a really, really palatable forage. So we're gonna go try to find grass hay that's really good on the room and doesn't cause any inflammation in the room. And the rest of the calves are probably eating a bit of corn in their diet or maybe quite a bit of corn in their diet. So their rumen's having to go on, so the GI disruption going on at the same time. So we're gonna remove the GI disruption. We'll put them on a really palatable diet, get them off where they don't have to compete. They've got all kinds of space, bed them deep so they're comfortable, give them four or five days. It's the hospital. We literally put them in what we call a hospital. So they go in a hospital pen and they get a little TLC for a few days and let the antibiotics work. But more importantly, we let that immune system start to work and we let that immune system get ahead of the curve. I think one of the things that as a food animal that maybe you do different than maybe a small animal vet like myself is you're really comfortable treating the patient before you have a diagnosis. And you have a diagnosis as a, a body system that you know is affected, but can you talk about how it, does it matter to you that you don't know exactly what bug is causing their disease? Uh, everything we deal with on, on, particularly in respiratory disease is all commensal, it's there every day. So it's, remember disease isn't, a, isn't the bug, disease is the fact that the host didn't maintain homeostasis and that the host didn't maintain those bugs in check. And so when we, when we look at that, right, I, I still think of that, um, I think about that in every case I deal with. And it's, it's always back to why is the host not compensating? Why is the host not maintained that? And so we view treatment very much as a holistic approach to say, yeah, I've got some, some things in a bottle that I can use, but the bottle is only one-tenth of what we're actually going to do to solve the problem. Now, I worry about which pathogens are there a lot when we're trying to do disease control or transmission control, particularly in the pig business. I mean, we focus a lot on which pathogens there because we have epidemic pathogens that we're trying to eradicate or we're trying to keep out of farms. So we do focus on pathogen there. But, you know, this is the same way human docs treat things. Community-acquired pneumonia, right, that's a whole batch of things that people get and, and get sick from, and it includes all the bugs. And the answer is, is my, my friend Dr. Wade Taylor told me one day, I asked him if a calf had IBR, which is herpes virus, and his answer was yes. And I asked him something else, he said yes. He goes, it has all those things. They always have all those things, and who cares? Our job is to treat the calf 
to fix the critter. And so um, I think that, you know, right, that's where we tend to think maybe a bit differently. The other thing I got taught very, very early in practice is, is that your job isn't to put a name on it. Your job is to fix the problem. And nobody cares what it's called. They just want it fixed. So I, I think we as veterinarians, and, and we see our colleagues in the human side do the same thing, right? We chase and chase and chase diagnosis. And, and you know, I've seen enough of, of my uh, friends and uh, et cetera that work in the, in the, in the human side get, they're, they're sick and they're sick for weeks and we continue to chase a diagnosis. And at some point, would you just do something? Like treat it symptomatically. I mean, fix it. And, and I think that's a key message we have to remember as, def, as veterinarians, right? Somebody's going to pay us to fix the problem. And if we're not fixing the problem, no one cares what it's called. Yeah, they'd like to know what it's called, and knowing what it's called is handy. And sometimes that's really important in guiding what we need to do. And sometimes it doesn't matter at all. And taking that to the extreme, right? So we do some work with St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, which is funny. I'm a pig guy, and I'm working with... Children's Research Hospital, but they do a lot of influenza work and that's how St. Jude started. They were doing infectious disease in little kids. So they still have a huge infectious disease department. They do cancer now primarily. And so if you just think of the ends of the spectrum, a diagnosis is really important down to the level of which genes are being expressed in many of these cancer therapies. And so that's where it's not just the name of the disease, it's some sub-bit of a sub-bit of a sub-bit, but that's a really critical bit to solve the problem. And so they've radically changed outcomes of some of these little kids' cancers by looking at specific genotypes of the tumor. And yet there are other things like pneumonia or community-acquired pneumonia where those are commensals that the immune system's gone wacky. And we need to be able to go fix the wacky immune system, not the bug. And so understanding that becomes really important as we think about what are we trying to solve as a veterinarian? What ended up happening to these calves? Yeah, you told me not to pick a case where they all died. <laughs> and I, I'm only a moderately bad veterinarian, so I do have a few cases where they lived. So as expected, right, this is a small herd. Most of these, all these calves lived. We had another uh, 15 or 18 that got sick. All of them lived. And so that would be expected. So we would expect on a normal group of calves that 20% of them are going to get sick with respiratory disease. That's just kind of bog standard on these kind of mixed calves together. 20% are going to demonstrate. I don't know how many actually have disease. 20% are going to get treated for it. Probably a higher percentage have it and get over it on their own. 20% are going to get treated. And of that 20% we treat, we're going to expect 3 or 4% to die. So not 3 or 4% of the population, 3 or 4% of those that we treat. So one to one and a half percent of the cattle that we see that show up in a feed jar from these things are gonna die from respiratory disease. Well, thank you for presenting this great case. I guess it's a cases. You had multiple patients in your case. I'm gonna ask you a question we ask everybody at the end of the show, which is as a new veterinarian, what did you tend to do wrong? We have three hours. <laughs> no, I mean, I think the the bi the biggest thing you tend to do wrong as a young veterinarian is a, a couple of things. One, not go and so I've been fortunate. I've started, I've hired and started a lot of young veterinarians, and, and 
solidly in the double digits over the last 20 years. And so that's, that's um, a fantastic experience to watch young vets grow and develop and, and, and move forward. But I think we're all similar. Uh, I think they've, they all tend to make the same mistakes. And I think I made those mistakes um, as well. And I think one of those is, is that you have to go look. You can't take people's word for what they're telling you. And so you, you just, you, you have to go look. And you have to go continue to not believe your own genius. And, and I think, right, we, we graduate and we think we understand the science and we think we understand these things. And somebody told us this is how we're supposed to do it. And we go do it and it doesn't work. And then we don't know why. And so it's um, the, the critical bit of, of getting better is reserving the right to be wrong, assuming you're going to be wrong, and then going to fix it. And, and I think I've, I've never had a client that was mad at you for being wrong. I've had many clients mad at me because I th- they didn't think I cared as much about it as they did. And I don't mean that, that there's uh, a big empathy bucket there. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for compassion. And empathy and compassion are very different. It's the emotional engagement on our side. So they don't expect you to be empathetic. They expect you to be compassionate and understand them, but not take it on emotionally. And right, that's part of our job is to put on our big kid pants and, and be the adult in the room. It doesn't mean we're not compassionate. We don't feel for them, but we stay unemotionally involved. And then they've got to be convinced that you're as worried and you're as working hard, working as hard on the case as they can. And so... If you got to go follow up four times and not get paid, that's what you need to do. If you need to call them back the next day, that's not the technician calling them back. That's you calling them back, saying, hey, Henry, how are those calves doing? And I don't send anybody a bill for that. I don't do anything. And I think as a young vet, you don't recognize that it's that interpersonal connection that builds a client base and and builds your skills and understanding of, of how do I how do I be a better caregiver and a better care provider and, and do that in a way that I'm not emotionally exhausted, but my clients know that I'm all in. And they got to know you're all in. But that means you've also got to be uh, mentally there enough to be all in. And I think that's, you know, right, that's, that's the challenge is that balance of caring, but uh, not being emotionally involved. I think that's Great advice. Thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Lowe. Thanks, Dr. Mitek. And that's the case. Our thanks to Dr. Jim Lowe and to all of you for joining us. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing. In addition to this podcast, We offer a wide range of learning opportunities for veterinary students and veterinarians. You can learn more about those by visiting online.vetmed.illinois.edu. I'm Dr. Ashley Mitek, your veterinary detective.